And we'll be in Amos chapter 5 this morning. So turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 5. And our scripture reading will be just verses 1 through 17. So Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. I'll read the scripture passage together. I'll give you um, a little bit of um, kind of opening information to know about the structure of this passage, and then we'll get into the teaching. So Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves at in the gate, and they abhor him <coughs> who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all of the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards... There shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, 
says the Lord. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. And God, indeed, we having heard your word, we do as we, we regularly make as our practice. We ask for your assistance by your spirit uh, to help us here in these moments as we reflect on them, that we would understand them, that we would know what you had communicated through Amos to say to this northern kingdom of Israel, and that we would, by extension, see the message that you'd have here for us and how it pertains to us as Christians um, and Christ. And so, God, we ask your, your help this morning. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray and all God's people said, amen and amen. So as a little recap of where we have been thus far in the book of Amos, we saw the setup on the very first week in the first two chapters when Amos was kind of giving a message of the Lord from all of the different neighboring cities around the northern kingdom of Israel of the judgment that was going to come upon them for their wickedness. And the message was to Israel, and they're thinking, this is great. The Lord's going to give judgment to all of the neighboring nations. And then they kept getting closer and closer until it circled on to, uh, and ultimately now to Israel herself. That was the first week. And then we saw last week kind of as a, a, the, a picture of the rest of Amos. So I kind of gave you, as you're reading this on your own or studying this passage on your own, um, you can see a, a little bit of the, the structure to the whole book. And uh, after that opening setup where he addresses all of the nations and then zeroing in on the northern kingdom of Israel, he gives three sermons in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and then the first half of chapter 5. And then he has two woes, two messages of woe in chapter, uh, the rest of chapter 5 into chapter 6. And then he ends with five visions. So this is where we're going to go in the next couple of weeks. Last week we saw the first, um, the first two of those three sermons. Today we're looking at that third sermon. And the grammatical hint to all of this you saw in chapter 3 verse 1 is hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. You saw it in chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. And then here it is for the third uh, sermon or third message. Hear this word that he gives. And so this is the third one today. Now, let me explain a little bit uh, about the structure as the passage as a whole. And I want to do that because uh, I'm going to go out of order in this, uh, in in our exposition of this passage. So uh, this section that I read is known as a, as a chiasm in uh, Hebrew poetry. It's a literary device where, and you can kind of get a visual picture of it here. Kind of see how it makes like an arrow. Um, he begins with a topic or a theme or um, certain kinds of words, and that is also how, uh, how Amos will end. And then he'll transition to the next topic is, will be the, the second to last thing that he will address. Um, and then the third thing, and then it kind of gets to the main point. So you know how it kind of, it's like a, a, a ladder. You're working your way um, from like the first rung to the second rung to the third rung. And in the middle of the passage is kind of like the, uh, uh, the, one of the main driving points. And then he repeats those on back down. So you can see this in your handout. Um, and this is a good, helpful guide to see the flow of this passage. And so our exposition today, we're actually going to go be addressing each one of 
the points in the, the, the chiasm. That chiasm is C-H-I-A-S-M. <clears throat> and so what we'll do is we're going to look at uh, the lament. We'll look at verses 1 through 3 and then 16 and 17. And then we're going to jump to the accusation in verse 7 and then in 12 uh, or 10 to 13. Um, <clears throat> actually, actually, it should be 10 to 12. I believe, and then the invitation is 13 to 14, or 15. Um, and then we'll look at the hymn to God, and then we'll end with, with, with B. So uh, what we're going to be doing is beginning with A, we'll look at both of the A's, we'll look at both of the C's, the D, and then we'll come back to the invitation uh, in letter B. So let's begin here with the first part of this chiasm. And that is a lament for the death of a nation. A lament. A lament is kind of a a funeral dirge. um, A sad song, a wailing. You saw those kind of language, uh, both beginning and ending of this little section here. It begins with a lament. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. And then notice what it says in verses 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, in all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. So this is a a lament for the death of a nation. Notice what it says in verse 2. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. Now, it's helpful to be reminded at this point is that when Amos is giving this word to the northern kingdom of Israel, they were very prosperous. They were very wealthy. They had utilized their uh, kind of diplomatic relations with the nations around them, that they were very prosperous. The way that they were located was a very great spot for for, uh, commerce and trade. They became very, very wealthy very shrewd politically, uh, and also very strong militarily. So this lamentation is, is a prophetic lamentation. This is, this is a lamentation speaking about what's going to happen in the future, maybe about two decades away. And so he's describing the northern kingdom of Israel as having fallen. Now notice What he says of Israel in verse 2, virgin Israel. Why this picture? Well, the implication here is that she is a young woman in the prime of her life, ready to enter into an exciting and fulfilling time in her life. Indeed, Israel Israel was kind of in the prime of their life at this point. But what was about to happen to them was a tragedy. Fallen. This is a Hebrew a euphemism for death. Many times you see in the Old Testament, oh, how the mighty have fallen. What it means is they've, they've been killed. They've died, tragically, in a battle. So when they say fallen, to rise no more is the virgin Israel, is the tragedy of a nation that's kind of in the prime of its life and is now going to be vanquished. And this brings no delight to either Amos or to the Lord because this is a cause for lamentation. This is a, this is a tragedy. 
a tragedy. And then notice the demise that happens to him in verse 3. For thus says the Lord, a city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. A city that went out with a hundred shall have ten left of the house of Israel. Notice the 90% reduction in troop strength among the young and the, the warrior types. Multiples of 10 in the Old Testament was kind of a way of saying, showing strength. Um, so you remember, like Saul killed his thousands, David killed his tens of thousands, right? This multiples of tens were to kind of show the magnitude of the strength. Well, inversely, what you have here is fractioning that one tenth. 90% reduction was the opposite. It's, it's a magnification of loss. A thousand went out, a hundred come back. A hundred come out, ten come back. And this really is fulfilling the warning that God had given in Deuteronomy 28 as one of the consequences of a people who would wander away from him and faithfulness to him. He said, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, so shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then notice in uh, verse 16, what he says here, I will pass through your midst. I will pass. Why is there going to be weeping and mourning and wailing? Alas, alas. Verse 17, excuse me, verse 17, for I will pass through your midst. Um, This is very reminiscent of the Exodus. When God had brought his people out of their bondage of slavery and he brought his people out to rescue them and to redeem them and to say, you are my people. You remember that on the ninth plague that it was uh, that God had said, I will go out in the midst of my people. I will pass through the land of Egypt and I will strike down the firstborn. When he uses these words here in verse 17, it's, it, it's sort of like saying what I did to Egypt in order to create you as my people is now what's going to happen to you. What happened to Egypt is what's going to happen to you. And again, this brings no pleasure to to the heart of God because this is a cause for lamentation and wailing and mourning. So much so that it's going to spread to everyone. In those days, they had professional mourners that you could hire to sing funeral dirges, sing it at uh, funerals. He says, those who are skilled in lamentation But it's not just for the professionals. This will go down even to the most basic laborers. The farmers will also go into mourning. This is this picture. This is is applicable to everyone. And again, this brings no delight to the heart of God. That's the lamentation that he begins and ends with in this chiasm. Now let's jump to the accusation. Or in this case, why? Why did this nation die? What did they do? 
That's spelled out for us in verse 7. And he starts in verse 7 and then he's interrupted by his own chiasm here. And then he comes back to it in verses 10 through 12. And there's basically two main things. The first one is injustice. Notice verse 7. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness on the earth. Wormwood is a, a plant that its extract was very bitter tasting and, and uh, poisonous. He uses this elsewhere um, in the next chapter. And so the oppressing classes in Israel's day were perverting justice. They were taking justice, which is supposed to be uh, sweet in the, uh, the, the taste in the palate of all of Israel because then everyone was, had, was treated equal. They had equal access under the law. They were turning it around and perverting it so that what was supposed to be sweet was now bitter and actually poisonous. And they were actually despising righteousness, casting down righteousness to the earth, meaning basically taking something that's very valuable and throwing it on the ground. Notice in verses 10, 11, and 12, he goes into a greater description about the injustice that was taking place in, in Amos' day. They hate him, this is Israel, Israel hates him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Okay, now you need to understand what gate means here. Gate in the ancient world, uh, like I, I had said, I believe I said this uh, last week or maybe in the class, that ancient cities um, had uh, walls that were around them. And usually the people who lived outside of the city would come in to sleep in the evenings. Shepherds would do that. And they would lock up the gate for security and there would be one gate. And it was the main kind of thoroughfare. It was the main kind of center of, the ancient, uh, of those ancient cities. And this would be where business transactions would take place. And this would also be where judgments and verdicts would have to be administered. So the gate became kind of this, this metaphor for the courts, the court system, where justice would be resolved. If you had a case, you had an issue, you would come and bring it. And you had a grievance, you would come and bring it to the gate. And the elders at the gate would, would hear and uh, debate and uh, deliberate. And then it would come to a conclusion and say, this is, this is what is just according to the law. The indictment against Israel here is that they hate him who comes and attempts to make his case at the gate. They hate those who attempt to seek justice or those who... Swear to say the truth. They abhor him who speaks the truth. This is injustice. This is what the injustice in Israel's day. Notice in verse 11. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. The idea here is that they were perverting justice in some way so as to extract from the poor and for them to profit off of it. Now, again, as we said many times, having wealth is not a problem in the Bible. 
the ill-gotten gain is a problem. Sometimes the Lord does bless. Sometimes the the lot of a person's life is, is not that. But sometimes it is. But what the Lord hates is that those who would manipulate the system so as to gain wealth at the expense uh, through injustice on others, causing them to go into financial difficulty, whereas they would feast off of it. This the Lord does not like. And so he says to those who have perverted justice, who have manipulated the system, who are in the levers of power to achieve wealth at the expense of others, those will be the ones who, although they've made beautiful houses of hewn stone, you're you're going to end up not living in them. You planted these nice vineyards. You're not going to drink their wine. Now, this doesn't happen immediately. Like I said, this happens maybe in a couple of decades from here. But the Lord is giving this message of judgment against them because of injustice. Injustice. So to pervert justice, turn justice into bitterness, to oppress the righteous or the, in, uh, the, the innocent, to hate those who trample. He, the Lord hates those who trample on the poor, hates those who, who lie, The Lord is concerned about uh, justice. Now, that's a big topic in in today's culture and times. Justice, what does that mean? Um, Usually today, when people speak about justice, they have certain movements in mind or certain ideas about justice. But let me just say this, justice in, in the Bible is not equality of outcomes, as is often used today. It's uh, not equity in terms of results. It's equal under the law. Fairness applied to all persons. So this means that judges should rule in conformity with the law. They shouldn't tip the scales one way or the other. Here's the thing. Human legal systems can be very imperfect. But in Israel's day, the law that they were perverting was the law that came from God himself. And God did not want his law perverted. Let me give a couple of passages. Exodus chapter 23. Where he says, you shall, he's talking about the people of Israel. When you're in this land, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Or Deuteronomy chapter 16. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. This is what the Lord wants fairness for his people. I know I've I've shared this story before. I'll make it kind of a quick summary of it, but 
Um, if there was a period of time, I, I worked at the bank, and we had, um, we had, often we would have customers who would come in who didn't have very much in their balance, and so sometimes if they would write a check or use their debit card, and it would throw, uh, it would throw their balance into a negative balance, and it would be overdrawn, and then for every transaction it would be overdrawn, the bank at that time would charge $25, $25, and I would have to deal with some customers that would come in and, and do this, and there was, there was no, no mercy. Um, but one time we had a, a, a woman that came in, and she was livid mad, hot mad, and um, she had a daughter who was in college and who, was, uh, who got a, a $1,000 of just spending money every month while she was in college. And uh, all of a sudden, the account was overdrawn. Well, what the daughter had done was, was had double entered the $1,000, so she thought she had $1,000 more, which meant she went and then spent that $1,000. And so I had to pull up to find out what all the charges were, and it was going out to restaurants, $150 restaurants, shopping, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I had to spell out, and I printed out for her all of the, the charges, and there was $25 each charge, each one. And it amounted to, I don't remember, $450 worth of fees. And so... Uh, the lady wanted to know if there was something we could do about that. I said, there's nothing. And she goes, well, let me talk to the manager. She talks to the manager and they had some business loans and they had some mortgages and stuff like that. And then the manager had said, wipe away all the fees. Just wipe away. They, they have business accounts with us. And I get it. That's how, you know, maybe that's how the world works in this day and age. And so I had to, after I had, just told her I cannot wipe these out. I had to wipe out these $450 charges. And she left and happy and the manager goes back to his office. And then the next person who came up was somebody who was struggling and was overdrawn in their account. They only had a regular balance of about $100 and then had several overdrafts. So that was a picture for me of the hatred that God has for this inequity. Right? This is what Israel was doing. Injustice. Two different standards of justice. You've heard me maybe say before, there's, there's really two departments of justice in the United States. There's the department of just us and just us. Just us. God sees and he knows. That's the first thing that they did wrong. Here's the second thing that they did wrong. And he's going to get into this a little bit later in chapter 6. Uh, and we'll see this next week. But it, it's embedded a little bit in, in the part B of the chiasm here in verse 5. And that is the false worship. It's often spoken of that, that Amos is very concerned with justice. And that's a little bit of a distortion. The whole Bible is concerned with justice. Amos isn't saying anything that Isaiah doesn't say. Or Exodus doesn't say, or Deuteronomy doesn't say, or Jesus doesn't say. So there's an injustice, but there's, there's always something that's connected to injustice, and that is false worship or idolatry or a false understanding about God. The two always go together. And so you see this in verse 5. For he said, the Lord says, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, do not go do not enter into Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Uh, so you see the chiasm here. You, you see a, a little smaller chiasm, 
if you're astute paying attention here, did you see another chiasm here as well? Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, Gilgal, Bethel. There's good little structures within the structure, I think is really uh, cool and interesting. All three cities had rival temples, places of worship and sacrifice, as opposed to the one established by the Lord in Jerusalem. All three of those cities. There were others. They weren't the only three. There were others, but these are the three that apparently would have been uh, sites of pilgrimage for northern kingdom of Israel, which is really interesting because Beersheba is way in the region of Judah. You're actually going into like uh, uh, crossing a border uh, from the northern kingdom of Israel into the southern kingdom of Judah to go into Beersheba to worship there. And this goes back, why are there multiple cities here for worship? This goes back to the splitting of the southern kingdom. You remember David, the kingdom of Israel, and then he dies. And then there's Solomon. You have the kingdom of Israel and it expands. But then after Solomon, the kingdom breaks up into two in kind of a civil war, north and and south. And you have Jeroboam and, and Rehoboam. Rehoboam was in the south. And Jeroboam was in the, t- the ten tribes in the north. And 1 Kings chapter 12 tells you a little bit of the background by why there are all of these places here. Jeroboam, right, he's not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in Judea. That's where the temple is. That's where the ark is. So how's he going to keep this northern tribe all together if they're faithful Jews and want to go down to Jerusalem to worship? Well, make alternate sites, right? So notice what it says in 1 Kings chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but here, uh, just a little bit of the, the background behind this. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. Okay, back down to Jerusalem. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam his rival, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two gold calves. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We all, we remember Aaron making the golden calf, right? Jeroboam one up, <laughs> you need two of them. And he comes and he says, here, these are the, these two gold things that I'd carved. These, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And then this, he says this, um, behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Israelites. So Bethel was one of the first sites at the very beginning of the fracturing of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And one of the first sites of the false worship that was set up as a rival to what the true place of worship was in Jerusalem. Bethel and the other one in the north in Dan. The same thing happens with Gilgal. It also becomes a center of formal and unspiritual and uh, unethical worship. And these two are 
often associated, Bethel and Gilgal. We saw this in chapter 4, right? When he's saying the sarcastic, mocking words, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply. You see the two put together. And then Beersheba, like I said, was actually in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so they would have to make a pilgrimage walking basically past Jerusalem. Because Beersheba is southwest of Jerusalem. They're walking past Jerusalem so as to go and worship at one of these other fraudulent sites. Okay? So I, I say that to say, even embedded in this passage, you have the two-pronged problem. Injustice and false worship. Those, wherever you see one, you're, you're going to see the other. As a matter of fact, if you see false, if you see injustice, you know You've got idolatry or, or a misunderstanding in the background. So, so sin, often when, when people speak about Amos being the social justice prophet, uh, everywhere you look, you go, no, 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 this is, this is not just social. This is theological. Every, every social injustice is theological. They were not seeking the one true God, the God. They were instead, they were fashioning their own gods. This is the foundational problem for all of our social ills. If you deprive people of justice, if you have unequal treatment under the law, if you have partiality, you have favoritism, you have rules for thee, but not for me, then you do not love your neighbor. And if you do not love your neighbor, then you do not love or know God. John wrote in his letters, 1 John chapter 2, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Or chapter 2, verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Or 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Social injustice, injustice of any form, is always connected to a false sense of worship. So this is what Israel did. This is why this nation must die. This is why the Lord is lamenting and calling for others to join in him in lament. Because his people, his chosen people, had abandoned him and had devolved societally into just a fracturing of what was happening uh, in, in relations. Justice was torn apart. Corruption and greed were taking over. This is what they were guilty of. And it's not just what sins they commit. It's ultimately um, against whom those sins are committed. Remember Psalm 51 where David, the psalm of David's lamentation and his psalm of repentance after the issue with David and, and Bathsheba, Right? And he said, you against you and you only have I sinned. Any readers going, wait a second. I'm pretty sure Uriah was sinned against when you had him murdered. 
I'm pretty sure Bathsheba was sinned against when you killed her, killed her husband. But ultimately, the idea is that, no, not, it's not saying that there wasn't sin or injustice committed against them, but every sin is a sin against God. Every injustice committed socially is a, is a sin against God. Whether you profess to know him or not. So who did they fend? Well, they fended God. He is the center of the chiasm, right? The Lord God is the center of this chiasm. He is the focus because he's the one ultimately against whom they are sinned. Here's a couple of things that we should notice about this God that we see in him in verses 8 through 9. Here in the middle of the chiasm, which even has even a more of a middle into that too, but for simplicity's sake, I'll just show you this. He who made the Pleiades and Orion. This is God the creator. Every sin of injustice committed against image bearers of God is also connected to a false worship and is a sin against God the creator. He who made the Pleiades and Orion. These are magnificent constellations of stars. They would have captivated the imaginations of people in the ancient days when you didn't have light pollution. You could, could kind of see it quite a bit easier. And it was incorporated into various ancient Near Eastern religious uh, religions. That those magnificent things that everybody was captivated by and they would figure that connected to the gods, um, Amos reminds us, God made those. Not only that, he who made Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night. This, I think, is also echoing the magnificent hand and working of God back in Exodus. Darkening during the day of the ninth plague. He alone has the power to make major reversals in the created order. Notice the next one. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. This could be, uh, this could be a reference to creation in Genesis chapter, chapter 1. Um, it could be the working of the Lord God in the flood in Genesis chapter 9 and following. And it also could be the exodus of the parting of the Red Sea. But the idea is the, the same. The, the, the Lord God who can turn day into night, night into day, gather up massive amounts of water on the earth. There's only one who does that, and that is the Lord, and that's who they have sinned against. That's who, that's who we sin against and we offend. The God who made us. And the one who made us is also the one who can unmake us. And so here's God, the destroyer, in verse 9. Not only does he make constellations, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Notice destruction used twice there. The God, our creator, is not just creator. He's also the one can undo it. He has the power over life and death. And then thirdly, and this one's kind of the center even of that part of the chiasm. You have God the creator and God the destroyer, the uncreator, 
But then in the middle of that, you have the God of the covenant right there, smack in the middle. The Lord is his name. From Exodus chapter 3. When Moses sees the burning bush and has to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground, because the Lord God has appeared to him in this burning bush and is commissioned by the the Lord. And he goes, who shall I say? I am who I am. Tell him I am sent you. This is my covenant name that will be known forever. That's the Lord. So that's who they have offended. When you commit sin and injustice, it's always connected to a false understanding of God. And it's forgetting that there's one true creator who owns all of it. And it's also forgetting that there's one true judge over all of it who will bring it all to destruction. And that that creator and destroyer is the covenant God by whom Israel was called out and created as a people. This sin is great. That's why the wailing is great. That's why the lamentation is great. But notice in the midst of this even, the last one, this is going back to the B of the chiasm in verses four through six. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. We saw verse 5 already. Now notice what it says in verse 6. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire. Notice verse 13, 14, and 15. Therefore he is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. You're supposed to see the clear parallel here. Doing good cannot be divorced from the Lord himself that you have to seek. You can't seek to do good without seeking the Lord. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as I have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Notice that the cure for the sin of injustice is not to immediately start doing justice. The cure for the sin of injustice is to repent and return to the Lord. Seek him. Then do what he desires. Then do justice. It's only after seeking the Lord and being restored in him that you can rightly understand even what justice is as he defines it. Right? This passage as a whole really drives home how, just how distorted our hearts are when we have lost connection with our creator. We pursue gods of our own making which then leads us to abuse others for our own sake. This is what the early church, leader of the early church, Augustine, his Latin phrase for this is incurvatus in se. 
describing mankind. Homo incurvatus in se. Mankind has turned in or curved inward on itself. Describing a life that's inward focused rather than outward focused. And this all comes when our, when our connection with our creator is destroyed. And so notice the passion and the appeal in these verses. The Lord does not delight in having to do this to Israel. He wants them to be saved. And even so much so that the destruction is going to come. He's speaking of this as a fact that is going to come upon the northern kingdom of Israel. He has spelled this out. Even He's even hinted and alluded at the nation that is even going to come to do this. And it's coming in a few decades time. Even then... He wants them, if there's a remnant there, I will save you. Maybe not temporally in the judgment that's going to happen, but eternally, your souls, I will save you if you seek me and live. These are his people. God is calling his people. He pleads with them and he turns he pleads for them to turn from their sins and return to him, even as the judgment is about to descend upon them and will not be stopped. The Lord still offers mercy. I heard one person describe this passage as, what's it going to take? What's it going to take for you to return, Israel, to the Lord your God? Friends, for us, the judgment that came upon Israel is a foreshadowing of the greater judgment that is going to come when Christ himself returns. He spoke about this. And that through him and him alone, Jesus Christ, that in him, The judgment that we deserve is put on him instead. And the righteousness and justice that Jesus fulfilled perfectly gets counted to us. So the message of Amos is the message for all of us and for all of the world. Seek me and live. This hasn't changed. Jesus says to any who would come to me, I will not cast out. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that anyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Seek the Lord and live. So if you haven't sought Jesus, Do so. I beg you to do so now with the intensity that Amos was begging Israel here. And brothers and sisters in Christ, what what joy is there for us in realizing that when we seek the Lord, we seek Jesus, we live eternally. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's, let's pray together, shall we? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you.
We thank you not only for your word. We thank you for this message from Amos, which on its own is a dark and sad and discouraging word because it's a word of destruction and lamentation over the death of the nation you made. But God, we thank you that even within it, there is the cry of hope and abundant evidences of your mercy. That even then, on the verge of the destruction of virgin Israel, you would call for them to seek and to live. God, we thank you that it's through Jesus Christ and that seeking him and his work done for us on our behalf that we, that we can live. And so we thank you for Jesus. Heavenly Father, we ask that now you would in this coming week that we would live with gratitude for the grace that you have shown us. And be help to remind us of your word, of the assurance that you give, that all who call upon you will indeed be saved and to live. We thank you for your abundant grace and mercy in Christ, in whose name we pray, and all God's people said, amen and amen. Friends, let's stand for our closing benediction. Uh, if you have any questions and, or would like to, to pray, um, feel free to come up to me afterward. I'd love to, to talk to you. Um, also, I, I always forget this, but there's an offering box somewhere over there. I'm told I'm always supposed to mention that. And, um, and then uh, don't forget your handouts for the class tomorrow night. And then also next Sunday, the parade for, for Jay and for Luna. Um, and so let's hear this closing benediction as we go. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Father, and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you. Thank you.